Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Today we're speaking with director Morgan Neville about his new documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, an exploration of Fred Rogers and his groundbreaking, heartwarming show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So, listeners all know that I'm a big weeper, (laughs) but I did not cry at this movie. And I was surprised because literally everyone I talked to talked about how they sobbed while watching it. Huh. Wow. Did you cry while watching it? I did. You did? A few times, yeah. I mean, there were definitely moments where I got close, but I think most of the time I was just stunned by what a commitment to empathy Fred Rogers had and more, th- and maybe that's what prevented me from crying because I was like, how can I be more like that? Like, how can I be more empathetic? Right. And I want to be more like Mr. Rogers as well, mm. um, Fred Rogers, but I also was something I really enjoyed was how strange his show is. We didn't oh, really get yeah. to talk to Morgan yeah. too much yeah. about this, but it was a kind of cagey and exploration of time. Right, because they have that thing where they were like, do you want to see how long a minute is? And then they just, which is unconscionable for TV or even for radio of just like, we're just going to do a minute of silence. So avant-garde. I I didn't realize that Mr. Rogers was so avant-garde. So The other thing I was actually wondering, and I'm glad we're in the studio together today, Kate, because obviously you're a new, well, new-ish mom. uh So what was it like watching this documentary about children as a new mother yourself? It made me excited to parent, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As I was watching it, I thought, oh, I'm so excited to have a child. You know, which I'm not always thinking. Sure, sure, I'm watching something, you know, before I go to sleep, knowing that I probably won't get very much sleep. But I thought, oh, I can't wait till tomorrow when I can treat my child with the awe and wonder that Mr. Rogers treated the children on his show with. Mm. And it, which didn't completely pan out, but sure. <laughs> I wasn't perfect all day, but yeah. I'm just We're trying. We're not all you know, Fred Rogers. Just yeah. trying. And it was television. Who knows exactly yeah. what he was like with his children all the time. But yeah. it is inspiring for that. And it's a really well-made documentary. Can't agree more. Okay. It's in theaters now, too. Exactly. Let's yeah. get right to that interview. Morgan Neville is an acclaimed producer, director, and screenwriter. He's perhaps best known for his Academy Award-winning 2014 documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom. Yet I am also a huge fan of his 2016 documentary, Best of Enemies, about the tense yet productive relationship between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, which won him an Emmy and was shortlisted for the Academy Award. His most recent film, Won't You Be My Neighbor, focuses on the life and impact of Fred Rogers, host of the tremendously popular Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's just go back in time to think about, because I was not, I had never watched Mr. Rogers as a child. So I had this like very interesting experience of watching a character with whom I was deeply culturally familiar, but having no real childhood experience with him. So were you a viewer of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a child? I was. I was born in 1967. So I was like Gen 1 Mr. Rogers fan. Okay, And this is before Sesame Street was on. So there was not a lot on for kids. I don't remember this. I mean, that's the thing about the show is the show is designed for two to six-year-olds. So for most people, your relationship with the show predates your memory, maybe by years. Mm, So even though I loved the show and I remember loving the show, I had very few specific memories of the show. 
you know, it was more kind of sense memory. And, you know, I remembered the trolley and Mr. McFeely and maybe the crayon factory episode. I remember that one. Things like that would stick in my head. But when I thought about it, I didn't have that much concrete stuff to go on. And like most people then, I didn't think about him for decades. He just kind of vanished. And then over the past, you know, maybe eight years, he kept reappearing in my life. And it's what led me to making this film. Wait, so can you talk about that? Like, how did you get interested in making the documentary? Well, it really honestly started with Yo-Yo Ma because Mm -hmm. I made a film with Yo-Yo called The Music of Strangers. Right. And early on when I was getting to know Yo-Yo one day at lunch, I happened to say, so how do you figure out how to be a famous person? (laughs) And he said, oh, Mr. Rogers taught me. And I kind of chuckled. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, I went on his show as a young man and he recognized that I was struggling with this. And he really mentored me over years to show me how to use fame uh. as a positive force for social change and not something that was going to weigh me down in life. That moment, a little light bulb went off, <laughs> the first of many. But that was This really... is a good story. And then I ended up using a tiny clip of Yo-Yo on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in that film. And every time it came on screen in screenings, it just felt great. You know, mm. there are all these mm. little hints. But really, maybe three years ago, somebody had sent me a commencement address he had given that was on YouTube. And I watched it, and then I watched another, and then I watched another, and then I just went down this rabbit hole of watching Mr. Rogers. And it wasn't even watching the show. It was watching speeches he gave or you know other interviews he had given. And I was hit with this overwhelming feeling of, where is this voice in our culture now? Mm. You know, this mm. is what I need now. So it was not a nostalgia trip at all. I'm not even a fan of nostalgia, really. <laughs> you know, it was like, how do we get this kind of voice into our culture? And what was the message, you know, what was the overriding message that was compelling you from watching all those speeches? Well, I mean, there are so many messages he gives, but essentially they boil down to valuing love and empathy mm-hmm. <laughs> over hate and fear. You know, mm. <laughs> essentially what he did in the show is teach very young kids how to be people, how to treat other people, how to treat themselves, like these basic life lessons yeah. of civility. I mean, that's what the neighborhood is, is you know a big lesson in how to build society and community. And nobody's advocating for that anymore. <laughs> so there's no kindness lobby in Washington. So I felt like, well, if anybody's going to do it, Mr. Rogers is going to do it. And that was really kind of my mission to put this film out there. I hadn't realized that he was a Presbyterian minister. So he was ordained. He was. And then he just radically changed course. No, no. From not becoming, he didn't want to become a minister. Well, I mean, he was a minister. Okay. He worked (laughs) as a minister. I mean, his television show was his ministry. (laughs) Right. No, but literally in his ordination from the Pittsburgh Presbury, it said that his congregation was television. I mean, literally on his certificate. So I think he was probably the first televangelist in history. You know, this is 1963 he was ordained. So that was really out of its time or out of time for what it was. But he was going to become a minister right out of college. He was a composition major in college at Rollins College. 
and then he found TV and he went into TV. So he was doing kids TV and he went to, so WQED was the first PBS station in the country. It was called Education TV then, but it was 1953. He was hired before the station was even on air and there were only three people working at the station. So he learned the ins and outs of how television worked and was doing that, but then started going back and getting his ministry degree and studying for all that. So he always knew what he was going to do with that ministry, but he also knew it was very important not to bring a Christian, you know, theology onto the air. And he did that because he never ever wanted anybody to come on air and feel that they weren't welcome. Mm. You know, if it felt like a Christian show, other kids wouldn't feel welcome. And in fact, I think ultimately what he ended up doing was bringing kind of this broad moral humanist point of view that is Christian in many ways, but he also was a huge student of the world's religions. He learned Hebrew and studied Judaism. He studied Islam and Buddhism. You know, he was a big fan of a lot of other Christian thinkers and writers, Henry Nouwen and all these interesting people. And so he was trying to come up with this common humanist ideology that exists in most of the world's religions, which is pretty much a good guidebook for how you should treat people, you know, right. essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm fascinated just to rewind a little bit to what you're saying about how his ministry was television because before we came into the studio, you were saying that actually this strange connection that I would not have imagined between Best of Enemies about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley and this Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary are of a piece at a particular time that you see in the development of television and its impact in the public sphere. Absolutely. I mean, I, it was very much in my mind that they were these cousin films. That one's the dark cousin, you know. Because it's a cautionary tale of, you know, where punditry and kind of confrontational TV news goes wrong. And kind of this pivotal moment when television realized they could get more ratings by having people fight rather than actually having intellectual discussion. And it was incredible that they even had intellectual discussion on TV. It Mm -hmm. seems so out of time. But one big common story for me between the two is that part of what Best of Enemies laments is the disappearance of what I think of as grown-ups in our culture, but people who aren't spinning for a party and who are really caring about the long-term health of our culture. And whether or not you agree with Buckley or Vidal, they were talking about American cultures. They would be talking about the Roman Empire. You know, they were mm-hmm. talking in stretches of millennia. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. you know, just what's the big picture? And I feel like Fred Rogers is another one of those grown-up voices because I feel like the grown-ups are gone. You know, there's nobody minding the store anymore. So how do we how do we find that kind of grown-up empathetic voice that's not trying to sell us something that's worried about our own long-term health as a community, as a country and beyond, you know. So were you making the film in some ways as a corrective to contemporary culture? Sure. I mean, honestly, I made it initially just to make myself feel better. <laughs> so you know, it started in a very personal place. And, you know, I feel like a lot of these issues I've made films about, which are about culture and common ground and kind of the use of culture to build empathy and understanding and, you know, things that that Fred was articulating. It felt like a message that I've always believed in and he was an interesting way of articulating it. And, you know, spending 2017 making this film was like 
the best place I could have been <laughs> mentally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, to be in the land of make-believe throughout the last year. Right. Yeah. I think in a way that's also what I have heard probably from almost everyone of my friends who has seen this documentary is this feeling that it generates both like I'm so wistful, I want to be careful about nostalgia because I think yeah. that pretending that that sort of feeling or radical empathy is locked in a closet somewhere in the past is dangerous. But this feeling of like, what an incredible man. And then this kind of also feeling of like, we don't have anything like that anymore and it doesn't feel like we can. So I wonder if there's a kind of a hopeful undercurrent to all of this. You know, like what do you hope that audiences take from it? Well, there are a few different things because there are different audiences. I mean, I think one thing is that Fred was somebody who, well, a question I often get in Q&As is, well, who's the, who's the next Mr. Rogers? There is no next Mr. Rogers, and I don't want you to wait for one because he's not showing up. I think it's the wrong question. I think the question is, what did you learn from Mr. Rogers that you can activate in your own life to make yeah. a difference? Yeah. You know, that to me was key because Mr. Rogers never tied everything up neatly with a bow and said, and that's it, and don't worry about it anymore. It was always asking questions. This film to me is about asking a lot of questions and asking a lot of the audience to ask themselves questions about their own moral responsibility for our neighborhood. Yeah, you know, actually, one of the things that occurred to me while I was watching the film is that there's a moment when you deal with, and it's kind of sprinkled a little bit throughout, but it feels sustained in the latter half of the film, where you're talking about people's kind of disbelief that Fred Rogers could be this good of a person, like in actual life, right? Oh, there's got to be somebody else. Like, this must just be a front. Is he gay? Like, all these other things that people are looking for scandal. And one of the things that I kept thinking about those moments, and then that truly atrocious, I think it must have been a Sean Hannity voiceover where he's saying that Fred Rogers did this horrible thing by making children feel that yeah, they're it was, special. Uh, oh, that was Fox and Friends. It was, yeah. Okay, same, you know, different moment in the schedule maybe. But in all of those cases, I keep thinking about the fact that maybe the resistance to believing that somebody could actually be that empathetic is because we don't ourselves want to be challenged to meet that empathy. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, and I mean, something else I've thought a lot about is that he's so sincere and vulnerable and open and sincerity one critic, it might be my favorite line I've ever read of any review of one of my movies, but a critic said that watching this movie is like freebasing sincerity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it is this sense of like, we live in a culture that is so cynical. Mm -hmm. Our politicians are cynical. Our superheroes are cynical. You know, yeah. everybody's yeah. cynical. So where do you find real sincerity? You know, it's so much easier to be cynical. And I'm guilty of it at times. We're all guilty sure. of it, you know. Right. But how do we, how do we ask more of ourselves? Because I think that's what Fred would do. We actually interviewed Vin Benders on the show for his new film on the Pope. And I have to say, when I was watching your documentary, I was reminded of the one on the Pope because of someone who's really truly living a theology and a set of morals. And not to say that Fred Rogers didn't have 
you know, doubts about himself, which you allude to in the, in the well, film. And that was important, too, because right. another danger with somebody like Fred Rogers is to sanctify him. Right. Like, yeah. if ever there's a character who could fall into easy sanctification, it'd be Mr. Rogers. But Joanne Rogers, his wife, had said this to me, and, and it shows how smart she is. But when we started the film, she said, don't make Fred into a saint. And it's because to sanctify him is to not acknowledge the work and struggle that he put into doing all those good works. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that struggle. Well, I mean, he was somebody, there was a part of him that was really like a tortured artist. Seems like it, yeah. Yeah. The work was incredibly difficult. It was taxing. He was a person of incredible willpower. And, you know, nobody ends up on television for 35 years without a great Mm -hmm. amount of willpower, Mm -hmm. even though his impression to most of the culture is that he was wimpy and a milk toast. And so I think he wondered, I mean, essentially, even beyond the tortured artist part, I think he always had this essential question of, am I doing enough? Mm -hmm. You know, I read letters he wrote to Joanne when he was 21 and starting out in television. What he wrote in this letter to Joanne was, everybody here looks so busy, but it doesn't seem like they're really doing anything. (laughs) I'd like to do something, but I don't know if I'm good enough to do it. You read his memos, even in what he says to Joanne on his deathbed. You know, am I a sheep or am I a goat? You know, just the fact that he was doubting his message and his efficacy throughout his entire life no doubt drove a lot of that hard work that he had to do. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Morgan Neville, director of Won't You Be My Neighbor. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So we have Joseph O'Neill in the studio with us. Joseph O'Neill is the author of um, many novels, but his most recent book is a collection of short stories called Good Trouble. Joseph is here to do a book recommendation. Joseph, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a nonfiction book called Brilliant Orange by David Winner. And I'm, I'm recommending it in honor of the, uh, the World Cup that they're playing right now. Okay. And um, it's a book about... Dutch football, orange is a reference to to the Dutch, and in particular the rise of something called total football in Holland in the 1970s and late 60s. And he sort of analyzes this kind of dramatic, rather cerebral change in the way soccer was played. And I'm very interested in it because, first of all, it's a great book. Second of all, I suppose I'm I'm very interested in, in that sport. And third of all, I grew up in Holland. Uh, for the main part, and played soccer there. And, you know, I know very well the world he describes. What is total football? Total football is this, I suppose, I don't know, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the origin of the phrase is. It's this idea that, you know, you have 11 players on the team, and at least 10 of them can play in any position at any given time. I see. So that, it, so that traditional ideas of attack and defense are deconstructed, and this kind of new dimension of of the sport is, is suddenly revealed. It's the Dutch soccer th- coaches and theorists, uh, Renus Michels in particular, who gave us the great Dutch teams of, of Ajax, Ajax, mm-hmm. and also the Dutch national teams of 74 and 78, and in due course Barcelona. And Johan Cruyff is the main 
figure associated with that kind of football. So, Joseph, will you give us the title of the book again and the author? Well, the title is Brilliant Orange, and the author is David Winner, but the subtitle is The Neurotic Genius of Dutch Football. We should have started with a subtitle because now it sounds something like I can understand. Yes, and he relates relates football to Dutch society and the various sort of idiosyncrasies of that Dutch people. Well, that sounds fascinating. Um, You've won this dummy over. Thank you, Joseph, for coming in and recommending this book. My pleasure. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Morgan Neville, director of Won't You Be My Neighbor? I was going to say that is part of the creative process, right? I don't know anyone that I think actually produces fantastic work or even frankly sometimes bad work that is not constantly racked by the feeling that it just won't happen. I mean, I assume that's got to be part of your own practice when you're like making a, a documentary. Sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm I'm used to it at this point. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. But I feel like my salvation is that I just try and make things that make me happy. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if other people are happy, then that's great, but honestly, even on this film, it felt so personal, actually, for me making this film. It was like 10 years worth of therapy into one film, you know. <laughs> but to screen it for the first time and have an audience take it away from you and be like, no, it's our film. You know, that is amazing. But I never, ever expect that to happen. But when it does, it's like magic. Did um, did Fred Rogers, do you think he ever felt... Because he did children's programming for a while, ten, about 10 years before he then yeah, went to do exactly. a, a program yeah. for adults. Do you think he ever felt kind of pigeonholed? I know a lot of childhood entertainers sometimes feel a little bit, you know, like they should be also making adult content as well. I think I think he had a profound belief in his mission in working with children. I think it also wore on him at times. And, you know, we talk about this time in the late 1970s where he stopped making the show for a couple of years and he did this adult program called Old Friends, New Friends. And he (laughs) did like 26 episodes over two years and they're actually really interesting episodes. But it's Fred trying to be as open and vulnerable and honest with adults. And it's interesting, but it's different, certainly than anything that was on television in the 1970s. So um, I think he realized really that I think he needed that break to understand just how important his connection was with children and his calling. And in fact, I think if he hadn't done the work he did in the 1980s, we wouldn't be talking about him because it's really in the 80s when he finally picked up the mantle of understanding his role as an advocate for children. You know, when he really started kind of traveling around the country and speaking at the White House and speaking at giant conferences and speaking out on education issues and kind of having a platform to finally advocate for children because he always thought the most people that were passing laws about education were not advocating for children. They were advocating for politics or for some other reason. 
one of the things that I find really fascinating about Fred Rogers' work is to restore the complexity of the child to the child. Like his constant message that like, children have a full range of emotions. They may not articulate themselves in the way that adults do, but they pick up all of this, right? So one of the things that I find truly fascinating is his willingness to think about children as more than just kind of what you were saying before, as more of than just political pawns or simple creatures that like need to constantly be taken care of the way that we think they, you know, that it's a a one directional relationship. Exactly. I mean, I think the, the natural instinct for a parent or an adult towards a child is one of love, but it's also one of condescension. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As a parent, I can say this, you know, that you, your kids say, oh, what about this? And I'm worried about this. And you you say, oh, don't worry about it or don't pay attention to that. And, you know, I say those things and and Fred Rogers would not approve, (laughs) you know, that what he did was understand that kids are way too smart to, to not know when bad things were happening or to understand you know, that you could just brush things like divorce under the carpet, you know, that um, that his decision was to level with children in age-appropriate ways so they could understand how the world worked. and But he, also in a radical way, right? Yeah. I mean, to talk to a child about death and loss. I mean, it's not only ahead of its time, it's out of time. I mean, nobody's done it We don't since. talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I was thinking, it, it, when I was watching that moment where he's talking to a child who has lost their cat, um, and the cat went through a sickness and then seemed to be getting better and then died the next day, there was something about that exchange that I was like, oh, I want to remember that. For if I ever have to talk to a child about death, it was never looking away from the horror of loss, the absoluteness of loss and the contingency of loss, but also making that child feel, like I'm getting all choked up talking, but making that child feel that it's okay and that the child has agency in telling his story about grief and loss. No, absolutely. There was a story that's not in the film that somebody had told us that they were taping an episode one day and uh, I think Henrietta Owl started crying. <laughs> and the guest on the show said, oh, don't cry. And Fred said, stop the taping, stop the taping. And he said, you should never tell a child not to cry, not to feel mm. something. You have to lean into it. You have yeah. to understand it. And he, that became a big lesson for everybody working on the show, that this idea that... Uh, you know, never deny your emotions because if you do, they just fester. Yeah. I was also really impressed with how political events came into the show. I mean, speaking of death, you know, there's this part where he spells out what an assassination means like, yeah, after Robert after Kennedy. Robert Kennedy's yeah. assassination. And I, was, I found that pretty shocking because I think something we always want with children is to shield them. Oh, you know, they won't understand what's going on with this or that anyways. You know, that's another thing that parents do is just try to obfuscate the, the yeah. news and sure. the tensions of the day. And um, it seemed like he addressed those head on um, for the most part. He did. I mean, that Bobby Kennedy special, um, which was to me kind of the the key to un- unlocking this whole film. You know, when I was deciding still if I could make the film and what the film was going to be, and I flew to Pittsburgh and I went to the Fred Rogers Center in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and the first thing I wanted to see is the Bobby Kennedy special because I'd read about it, but it had only aired one time in 1968 and was never seen since. And it was something that he insisted on doing. Nobody asked him to do that. 
I think Robert Kennedy was killed on a Wednesday night. The funeral was to be televised nationally on Saturday. And he said, I need to get this on the air because children are going to see this and know and they need to know how to process this. So he did it in a day and a half and it was on Friday night. And in watching that episode, any doubt I had about the complexity and the tension and the intent of what he was doing uh, was gone after I watched that episode. To me, that was like the moment where I was like, yes, I can make this film. Wow, yeah. And also the the washing of the feet with um, Officer Clemens was another thing. And that's another thing that kind of reminded me of the of the Pope documentary, but it it's the symbolism blew is, my mind. Yeah. Blew there, my mind. And, and honestly, there are many more. You know, I, I took some out. It could have gotten very heavy-handed, but there were right. just, you know, and many things he was doing like that. And even... Um, I mean, he even did some episodes about uh, about AIDS. Oh, really? That were yeah. kind of an allegory on AIDS, and uh, you know, I didn't. You know, of course, no kids know any about nothing about this when they're watching the episodes. But it's interesting, kind of what level he was working at, and it's also interesting that he was also making a show for children of course, but he was also making a show for the people in the back of the room who were watching on the couch. You know, not only trying to model what it was like to be a parent for them because we don't, we're not born great parents. You know, we have to learn how to be good parents. Um, But also delivering the same kind of messages that I think all humans need, not just children, in terms of reminding us of these kind of core human values of love and acceptance and self-acceptance. Did making this film change your own um, approach to parenting as a parent? I I think it has. I'm sure it has. You know, and my wife's a children's librarian. So okay. she's very in touch with kids. Yeah. So she's really good. You know, so she is... Um, and she was the first person I asked about making this film. I said, is this a good idea? She's like, yes, yes, that's a good idea. Um, but I think just in terms of trying to always remember to respect your child yeah. and speak to them as you would speak to anybody, I mean, in a way they can understand, but just this understanding that children are complex people and you know it's so easy to kind of fall into trite parentum you know mm-hmm. parentage you know so you you have to kind of remind yourself to kind of do the hard work of saying okay well let's really talk about what this means and you know and kids i mean i feel like essentially a lot of what fred was doing was talking about love and fear you know those were like the two things he talked about more than anything else and fear i think he felt was kind of the great danger in our world because fear was the thing that contributes and really allows things like anger and hatred and resentment and bigotry to come from you know but underneath all those things is fear and if you can stop the fear in the child or stop the fear in the adult you can maybe you know, help quell some of the anger and hatred and everything else we have in our culture. And I don't know if it, if that's, if it works that way, but, you know, I'm willing to try, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and I'm, and that's part of what I feel like a lot of people are getting about the film is that, you know, it's not, it's the connection between the personal and emotional and 
and our community and our neighborhood, that those things are deeply intertwined. Yeah, and I that slippage between, I mean, on the one hand, fear is so easy. It's a very easy emotion to feel, and it's a very easy emotion to react to. Empathy is like, to your point, like something that actually takes work. And yeah. I, throughout the film, I was reminded, particularly in his encounter with um, the actor who played the officer, Francois Fran- Clemens. Francois yeah. Clemens. Okay, and in his office. Okay, so in his interaction with the um, with Francois Clemens, who played Officer Clemens on the show, I was struck both by. I mean, on the one hand, it's obscure to me what. Um, Fred Rogers' actual feelings say about like homosexuals at that particular moment when he says um, Francois is caught or is seen and recognized out at a gay bar um, and he then you know uh, Fred has to say you know look you, you can't do that and still be on the show for reasons that would be obvious it's a threat to sponsors all that kind of stuff but so I don't know what um, Rogers' actual feeling was but then he has that amazing moment of saying like you know I love you just as you are and Francois realizing that he's actually saying that to me, you know, to this, to the character, but also to this individual actor. And it strikes me that Fred Rogers was always moving against a series of really difficult political and economic imperatives, the political and economic imperatives of television, but always trying to move himself towards a place of love and acceptance in a way that I think shows just how difficult, like how much work that actually is. Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah, empathy is not something the kids naturally demonstrate. It's something you mature into. You know, I know as a parent, it's, right, you know, right. it's, it's something that is, um, it comes with maturity. And what he was doing was so rooted in the sense of kind of the purity of what that kind of empathy can do, that it's, it's again, modeling kind of what the perfect neighborhood is, you know, and obviously on the one hand, won't you be my neighbor is love thy neighbor. And it's this sense of kind of his liberal reading of Christian theology, right? which to him was not radical at all, you know, is it, mm. it was essentially getting back to the basics of how we've been telling people how to treat each other all along. It's just the discrepancy between what we say and what we do, you know, and having a culture that, um, you know, tries to monetize relationships and yeah. treat them as transactional. I mean, he said I he was offered millions and millions of dollars to sell toys and to sell things, and he refused to because he said if I'm selling something to one of my visitors in the neighborhood, then I'm polluting that relationship. I can't do yeah. that. Um, I think he had this amazing kind of purity in his vision for it. At the same time, he's negotiating these difficult social attitudes and how they play in the world. And that instance with Officer Clemens, which, you know, you could look at as being very problematic um, in terms of its politics. I think the consistency in Fred was that the neighborhood for him had to always remain neutral. Um, Mm. Even if it was something he didn't agree with. And he was very pro-gay, particularly later on. He ended up actually leaving um, a church that he belonged to in Pittsburgh because he didn't find it liberal enough and joined the most liberal Presbyterian church in Pennsylvania. And his sister talks about how many gay friends they had that this was a community that was always So I think it it was evolving. But, you know, a a counterexample was during the Gulf War, a number of the cast members were very outspoken against the war Mm. and they wanted him to speak out. Now, Fred was a pacifist, you know, who did not 
like the war. But he said, if I say something like that and there's a child whose parent is fighting in that war, they may feel excluded from the neighborhood. Mm, So mm. I think that was his decision-making process about what could go onto the show and what couldn't go onto the show. And that his politics had to remain outside of it as as, as much as they could. But again, you see in these subtle ways, if he felt, you know, if you're talking about the um, the kiddie pool with Officer Clemens and bathing, yeah. you know, that to him these were basic human values that I think were something he wasn't going to compromise on. Oh, it's such a beautiful film. And um, thank you so much for coming here and speaking with us. We've been speaking with Morgan Neville, director of Won't You Be My Neighbor? Thanks again for joining us, Morgan. This has been a fantastic conversation. Sure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.